thought he was going to fill in for me for a second. If you have your Bibles with you or your favorite Bible app, we'll be in Matthew 5 this morning. Matthew 5 will be in the first uh, 11, 12 verses. I'll give you a little quick reminder. The year 2019 has been a year of small things for Hickory Grove. We focused on 12 small things throughout each of the months. And, uh, well, in a lot of ways, we ended last week our final small thing. And as we're moving into the year of 2020, we're beginning to prepare uh, for a new year, which means that um, we're going to be addressing about eight different themes and topics throughout the year of 2020. And the first one that we're going to be dealing with is uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And so we will be in Matthew 5 through 7 for about another month and a half till February 23rd, at least according to my schedule. Things could change. Uh, But that's where I expect us to be until February 23rd. So just hold your horses. Don't get ahead of us. I will say if you want to go ahead and start reading through Matthew 5 to 7, go right ahead. Uh, If you have questions and any suggestions, anything that pops into your head, as you're reading through, I want to hear them because that helps me shape my sermons for the next month and a half. So don't read and don't tell me what's, what's going on in your head because I want to hear from you. Hopefully now you found your spot in Matthew 5. Would you please stand for the reading of Christ's Word this morning? Matthew 5, verses 1-12. through 12, May you hear the Word of Christ. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountainside and sat down His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let us pray. Father, we thank You again for another time in which we can gather as Your people. Another time, another Sunday where we can come before Your Word and to be able to ask for Your illumination, to ask for Your enlightenment so that we could be able to understand what it is that is so magnificent and beautiful about this Word. And Lord, may You continue Your work in Your church that You would give us hearts that are tender and ready to see the world the way that you see it. To give us hearts that are ready to be empathetic, to be ready to feel for the world. And so, Lord, give us an understanding today of your word by your spirit. Father, we ask these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I have a few questions uh, to start with this morning. The first one I'll begin with this. And since it's the new year, we're talking about expectations and goals. 
Have you ever set an expectation or a list of expectations for Jesus? <clears throat> Pretty bold, right? Hey, Jesus, I got a list of things. Would you uh, be sure to look those over and get back to me? It's pretty bold. And let me ask, how did that work out for you? Pretty difficult, right? To be able to hear the expectations that you set before Christ. And yes, I'm being slightly humorous, but I think you might be hearing my point, and at least I can read your faces when I said that. Too often, we probably set expectations and demands for Jesus without even taking serious His expectations. Did you hear that? Taking serious His expectations of us. We may ask Jesus to follow our rules while not living under His kingly rule. We become the standard. And this becomes a serious problem uh, when we are trying to be the ones who follow Jesus. And when we set expectations in front of Christ, we're saying, you follow me, not I follow you. The Sermon on the Mount that we find again in ver uh, chapters 5-7 through seven of, of the Gospel of Matthew reminds Jesus' followers that our King sets grand and He also sets holy expectations. He gives us demands for us as His devout. He gives us rules for living under His rule in His own reign. And if you've been following Jesus uh, for some time now, I'm sure you found out this about His kingdom. It is so upside down, isn't it? When you hear the teachings of Jesus, you'll find out quickly that they are so upside down compared to what we might expect, the way the world ought to be. He will take it, and those teachings that we see in our culture, He flips them on their head. The day and time in which He's teaching, He flips the expectations on their head. It is completely upside down. How so? Well, we see across His teachings that the outside, those on the outside are now on the inside. Or the last are the first. The marginalized, well, they are brought near. The humble are exalted and the exalted are humbled. The righteous are unholy and the unholy are made righteous. The foolish are made wise and the wise foolish. And the winners lose and the losers win. Completely upside down from the expectations that a culture might set on uh, those who are of its citizens in, in society. Our king's kingdom is extraordinarily and extremely upside down. But let me ask you one other question. It's a little bit more of a probing question of your heart this morning. If Jesus' kingdom is upside down, that the outsider on the inside, the last or the first, the marginalized are brought near, the humble exalted, the unholy made righteous, and the losers are made winners, then here, do you live in His upside-down kingdom? If that is true, do you and I live as upside-downers in His kingdom? It's a serious question, no doubt, and it's a question that I think we'll have to answer if it's not by the end of this sermon, but we need to be able to really chew on the teachings that Jesus gives to His followers and His disciples. It's a question that we have to answer not only with our lips, but with our lives. And that's certainly what Jesus is pushing His disciples to definitely 
in these teachings that we have in front of us this, in front of us this morning, but the whole of Matthew five through seven. But we're going to be looking at verses three through twelve. And what you find in your Bible, you might see a little uh, subtitle up there. It might say Beatitudes. And if you've asked the question, what do the Beatitudes mean? You're in good company because it's a very common question. Beatitudes could be considered blessings. But how do we understand blessings? How I usually define and clarify blessings is this. Visible displays of God's favor. These are visible displays of God's favor. So let's see what Christ considers visible displays of God's favor in these verses in front of us this morning. Verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me begin with this. If we think Jesus simply sitting there telling people how to behave properly, we will miss what is really going on in these verses. And really, Matthew 5-7 through as a whole. These blessings, this wonderful news that Jesus is giving and He's announcing are not just saying, hey, try really hard and do this. That's not what He's after. What He's saying is this. Since you identify as, your, as God's people, if that is truly the banner on which you hang your life, this is what your identity should flow from. This is what it looks like to be God's people. This isn't a list of to-dos. If we are truly caught up in the story of God's redemption and reconciliation, this is how that identity flows out into our everyday lives. Most people think the wonderful news consists of success, wealth, long life, victory in battle. Jesus is offering wonderful news to the humble to the poor, to the mourners, to the peacemakers. And so let's look at that phrase, poor in spirit. This is a posture. It's a posturing of your heart in humility before the face of God Himself. We're to arrange our hearts, our habits, and our hands to display not just humility, but a humility that imitates and it echoes Jesus' own humility. A humility that isn't just a feeling, but it's also an action. What I've seen too many times throughout the years is that humility seems to be only just a posture of the heart, and that's it. I feel this way. I should humble myself. This attitude that I have, that's not a, a, a biblical view of humility. A biblical view of humility is a posturing of the heart, an attitude, a disposition, but it's also an action, a way of life. And so when we look at the life of Jesus, we witness someone who is poor in spirit in his feelings, in his attitude, his disposition, but he's also poor in spirit in his actions, in his ministry, in his interaction with others. Church, we cannot be empathetically poor in spirit. Where we feel sorry for others, if that's the only reason why we're poor in spirit, Jesus has got some harsh words for us. Jesus doesn't care if we're only feeling sorry for others or we're caught up in our feelings. Jesus desires for a poor in spirit attitude that would lead to a poor in spirit action. 
It's both and. It's not an either or. A poor in spirit attitude that leads to a poor in spirit action. Why? Well, because Jesus, to practice Jesus' attitude and actions, we're becoming outposts. We're becoming ambassadors of our King's kingdom. Speaking of almost 10 years ago, uh, we were sent to Haiti to offer some supplies, some help, some medical and dental help uh, shortly after the earthquake there. And I remember traveling through Port-au-Prince, which is their capital in Haiti, and it's completely people displaced left and right, shanty towns and uh, tents all over the place. But right in the middle of all these shanty towns and these tents and temporary tabernacles is that you find this large building set right in the middle of all this. And it looks like it's untouched, like the earthquake hasn't even unsettled the foundation at all. And then around this, you see this large fencing. And if you look up high enough, you see soldiers with guns looking down. And there's one really high out overlooking all of this city. Well, come to find out that is the United Nations. They had set up posts, or really they had been set up posts for some time, but you realize quickly, if you look to the right, displaced, exiles, people hurting, sick, tired, hungry, and then you have the UN, practically untouched. And what I quickly realized is that here is the United Nations, right in the middle of all of this disaster, and they are an outpost. They are a representation of the United Nations in the midst of all of this. Which quickly reminded me that that's no different from the kind of language that Paul uses of the church. That we are ambassadors. We are representatives of this Christ who is king in the midst of people who are hurting and broken and tired and hungry. But one of the invitations that he gives, at least in this verse, is to be poor in spirit and attitude, but also action. Verses 4 and 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. In verse 4, Jesus, this is beautiful, he's shepherding the hearts of his hearers. In this verse right here, and you can say in the other verses as well, but you definitely see it clearly here. He is being this good pastor to the people in this moment. He's looking into the eyes of those around him and he's offering words of comfort. Blessed are those who are hurting, who are mourning, who are tired, is essentially what Jesus is saying. Why? They will be comforted. They will be comforted. Comforted not by likes on Facebook or Instagram even though there is a tendency to see those. Comforted not by words of affirmation from friends or family, even though there's a tendency to find that affirmation in those things. Comforted not by job security, new relationships, or even a higher salary, even though there is a certain type of comfort that comes in them. Comforted by, instead, the very presence of God Himself. Those who've experienced the trials and the tempests of life that Jesus is looking at in His day, He understands that true comfort is only found not in things, but in the King of all things. They're found in the person. 
a person who empathizes, a person who embraces, a person who encourages when we weep and when we mourn. And this person knows the depths of our hearts. And yet he still loves and he still encourages us into a holy obedience or what Jesus calls a meekness. You see this in verse 5. Blessed are the meek. If there's a common picture of the good life found throughout American culture, I'm going to step on our toes for a second, so just be ready. If there's a good life that is found throughout American culture, it's this. You should be happy, and you should feel happy all the time. Right? Otherwise, we wouldn't have be uh, this bombardment of advertisements on the TV, in commercials, on our Facebook, and our Instagram of what the good life looks like. And the way that you can capture, we're told, and the way that you can embrace this happiness sometimes means that you are free to do what you want when you want. So it's not just a happiness found in things, but a happiness found in being free to do whatever you want. But I think there's a huge mistake in all this. And it's this. We cannot mistake freedom with rebellion. Those are two different things. Even though on the face of it, it looks and it sounds like the same thing, but freedom and rebellion are not the same thing. That tends to be the emphasis that we find throughout our culture. Not in every single place, but we do hear it often in our culture that freedom is a form of rebellion. And rebellion is an expression of one's freedom. We see this all over the place. In a rebellion against rules, it might be a rebellion against structures, it might be a rebellion against expectations or etiquettes that exist in culture, maybe a rebellion against organizations or institutions, belief systems or traditions, you name it. There's a rebellion that might be involved somewhere in some place. And we have this tendency that we see in culture again and again is that freedom is a freedom from I need to free myself from this. Again, this might be a freedom from rules or laws or institutions or traditions and the like. But let me emphasize again, this is a misunderstanding of what true freedom is. Paul reminds us in his letter to the Romans, and if you want to look it up, it's in uh, Romans 6. He says this, we don't have an option to be either obedient or not obedient to someone or something. He writes, since we're free in the freedom of God, can we do anything that comes to mind? Absolutely not, he says. And he goes on to say this, all of your lives you've let sin tell you what to do. But thank God you've started listening to a new master, one who commands set you free to live openly in His freedom. In other words, we're always obedient to someone or something. We're always obedient to someone or something. We can be obedient to ourselves, to our desires, to our will, to our dreams. Or, as Paul is saying, we can align ourselves to God's own desires. The story that God is bringing about. That's where true freedom will be found. Paul's point is that true freedom is found and exercised when we attach and when we allegiance ourselves to Christ Himself. That's where true freedom can be found. 
because Christ is bringing about a new freedom that is found in not being enslaved to a brokenness and sin, but being found in Him. And that's where our identity is found. That's where true liberty and freedom is found. That's meekness, according to Jesus Himself. That's a holy obedience whose inheritance is the earth, which is the larger narrative, the larger arc of Scripture that's going on where we're saying that when we inherit the earth, we're inheriting a resurrected life, a body that looks like Christ, an eternal life. The meek, the obedient, will receive Christ's resurrected life, a life filled with restored, with redeemed living before the very presence of Himself. Verses 6-8, through eight, let's look at those. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Whenever I read these verses, I see them as interwoven. I see them as interconnected. Here's how. Hungering for righteousness, it develops into acts of mercy. When you hunger for righteousness, it develops into acts of mercy. And both of those, they're rooted in a pure heart that loves God. That's how I see verses 6-8 through eight as connected. But I do have a confession. And maybe it's like yours, but here's my confession this morning, is that there are some, if not many days, where I don't hunger for God's righteousness. I just don't hunger for Him. And that's hard to be able to say, but it's true. Where I just don't wake up hungering for Him, hungering for His goodness and His grace. I just want to go on my way and be busy and forget that that's truly what my heart longs for. I don't hunger for His presence in my own life. His presence in my home and in my community and my neighborhood. That says a lot about my heart, no doubt. And maybe it's like yours. I don't know. Maybe your heart's in a better position than mine. But it's certainly a friction that I have seen from many Christians throughout the years is that they don't have this hungering and this thirsting for God Himself. But I do believe that this hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness begins with asking God to give us that hunger and to give us that kind of thirsting. If you look at Psalm 119, uh, and let me go ahead and warn you, if you do look at Psalm 119 in the next few days, it's the longest psalm in the Psalter. It's several verses, hundreds of verses. But when you look through Psalm 119, you'll see over and over again this. Here's a man pouring out his most authentic, transparent self before God. And as one writer puts it, what you find in the entire uh, Psalm 119 is this. It is a prayer of desire. And it's almost like interwoven throughout this psalm is this prayer. Father, teach me to want rightly and help me to live in obedience to those right desires. Father, teach me to want rightly. Not just to live rightly, not just to think rightly, but to want rightly. And let's... Just go ahead and say it that let's emphasize the hungering and the thirsting language that Jesus is using in these 
uh, this couple of verses here. If we think of hungering and thirsting, do you eat on a daily basis? Yes, you do. Do you eat multiple times in a day? Yes, you do. When you eat and when you drink multiple times a day, we acknowledge that this is a nourishing of our bodies. It's a nurturing of our bodies so that we can take care of ourselves, but also take care of others too. So when Jesus teaches us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, I think this is an intentional daily act where we are hungering and thirsting multiple times a day for God Himself. This is this leaning into God. And I would say it connects back to the uh, opening verse that we had, that we are to be ones who are poor in spirit. This posture of our heart where we lean into God and we have, are given these rightly ordered desires, these right wants before God. But what we find here, that wanting God and desiring God comes with this a part of our daily lives. To say that God is good is not the same thing as saying that our life is good. Right? To say that God is good is not to say the same thing that our life is good. We can acknowledge that our life isn't going the way it is meant to be. Or we could acknowledge our own confessional life. We could say that you don't like where you're at in life, but still acknowledge the goodness of God. So why in the world will we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Acknowledging these things. Well, Jesus tells us, you will be filled we know something about being filled. We're coming out of Thanksgiving dinners. We're coming out of Christmas dinners. We are satisfied. We didn't go to a Thanksgiving dinner. We didn't go to a Christmas dinner and say, I'm just going to have a little bit. No. You went to eat. You went to be satisfied and filled. Jesus is saying the same thing. When you hunger and when you thirst for righteousness, you will be filled by God Himself. You will be satisfied in God alone who is the one who can satisfy those hungers and those thirsts. Last few verses. Verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And then He adds on. Blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we said just a moment ago, we can say that God is good, but also acknowledge and say that our life might not be good. I think this is a part of what Jesus is doing in these verses 10-12. through 12. He has seen the harshest of realities around Him. What you can find with certainty in the Scriptures, especially in the New Testament and Jesus' teachings, is that He never paints a sugar plum picture of life. He gives you life as it really is in its harshest of realities. He understands this because He sees the will of the Father in front of Him. That He is going to suffer. He is going to be tortured. He is going to be crucified. And He is going to be killed. And yet, he connects persecution with being blessed. Church, this is 
It seems crazy, doesn't it? Somehow and in some way, he says that being unjustly persecuted and insulted are visible displays of God's favor. Why in the world would Jesus even teach such a thing? Why would he even entertain such a thing? To be insulted and persecuted, that's a visible display of God's favor? That sounds like lunacy. That sounds like pure craziness. I can only imagine the facial expressions of those who heard this teaching as he's summing up his Beatitudes. They're probably going with everything that he's been saying up to this point. They're saying, yes, absolutely wonderful. And then he gets to verses, verses 10 to 12, and he starts talking about persecution, being insulted, and being receiving all these ills of evil. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean, persecution? What does this have to do with being blessed and enjoying the life of God's favor? This is closely connected, I think, to what Jesus will teach later on in the Gospels. Anyone who wishes to follow me must deny himself and take up his cross. That was a call to death, church. People in his day knew exactly what the cross meant. It was a Roman torture device. They knew very well that the call to following Jesus meant a calling into death. A physical death, maybe. Definitely a spiritual death as well. Participating in the life of Christ means we also participate in His death. That's what baptism is a, is a symbol of. You are dying to your old self and rising to new life in Christ. There's a death and a life component of both. And yes, this sounds crazy. That there is in some way a blessing by receiving persecution. But whenever we allegiance ourselves with Christ by faith, we're opening ourselves to persecution. You're opening yourselves to insult and all other kinds of evil that are in the world. And what Paul reminds his churches when he's writing to them is this. It's not a matter of if you will receive persecution, but when you will receive persecution. But Jesus reminds those who are listening that persecution doesn't have the last word. He gives them a glimmer of hope. We'll keep these comforting words close to us where he says, Blessed are you who are persecuted. Why? Because you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. If there's one comfort that we find in this, it is certainly those last words. An inheritance in heaven with Christ Himself. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news, but there were 11 Christians who were um, slaughtered, I should say, a few days ago, I believe on Christmas Day in West Africa. 11 Christians were killed by a splinter group of Boko Haram, which is known by the name of the Islamic um, State West African Province. This is an extremist, militaristic Islamic group. Again, the emphasis there is the extremist. We know that from a video that they posted that the first victim was shot and the next 10 were killed by knife. If you know anything about West Africa, 
you know that when you confess Christ as king, it's a death sentence. We have too many friends who are north of that area in southern Turkey, and they know also that a confession that Christ is king very well might be a, a death sentence. So these 11 Christians who were killed, they knew very well that it could have been a death sentence. They understood that allegiance to this king named Jesus would likely lead to their death. And yet they knew, as Jesus teaches in the latter part of the Beatitudes, that their reward was greater than the insults and the persecutions that were received. So let's see if we can wind this up and tie it to where we started. As I said in the beginning, the Beatitudes, we might call them blessings, but if we clarified even more, we would say that they are visible displays of God's favor. But notice how we commonly talk about God's blessings on our day-to-day basis. Here's how we usually talk about them. About staying healthy, which, hey, that's great right now, right? or sometimes being financially wealthy. That's how we typically think of being blessed and receiving blessings from God. And don't hear me out. I'm not antagonizing anyone. There's nothing wrong with either of those, health and wealth. But we have to acknowledge the fact that Jesus doesn't entertain either one of these in his Beatitudes. Did you figure that out? He doesn't talk about health, and he doesn't talk about wealth. When was the last time that you wept and you mourned? Are those times where you built friendships with enemies? Or when was the last time in the circumstances of your life where you've possibly been emotionally, psychologically, or even physically uh, persecuted and thought, I'm blessed? We don't usually think of those circumstances as blessings. We don't usually connect blessed with mourning. We don't usually connect blessed with obedience or being merciful. We don't usually connect blessed with being persecuted, surely. Again, I think one reason why is we typically associate in our world, in America, being blessed with being healthy and wealthy. But I think we've seen today is that Jesus' kingdom is upside down. It's certainly contrasted with what American... Americans typically value as what blessed is, which had me thinking this week. If we could come together and we could get a poll of what America's Beatitudes would be, how would they be written out? And so this is my imagination going wild. So this is the American Beatitudes. Blessed are the rich and prosperous. For theirs is the kingdom of financial stability. Blessed are those who are emotionally happy and stable, for they will find comfort. Blessed are the rebellious, for they shall inherit equality and reap civil justices. Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for pleasure, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who are revengeful, for they will find revenge. Blessed are the beautiful, for they will receive the worship of others on social media. Blessed are the militant and combatant, for they will be called children of justice. Blessed are the comfortable and those who seek convenience, for they shall inherit the kingdoms of this world. Obviously, 
Let me clarify, there's nothing wrong with beauty. Thank you for those who are beautiful. There's nothing wrong with justice. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with health. But when these become the standards of, or the values of American culture, then we've put them on a pedestal that they serve as a God to us. We've put them on a platform they don't deserve to be on. Because the list of Jesus' virtues and His Beatitudes give an alternative vision of what health and wealth really looks like according to the Christian Scriptures. And then we can see and hear that Jesus doesn't prioritize our money. That's great that He gives us money to do things with, to help others with, to bless others with. He doesn't prioritize our social statuses, even though we're thankful for the statuses that we're given, the employee that we might be or the employer that we might be, or the status that we have in a culture or a town. That's great, but He doesn't prioritize those things. Our personal preferences. He doesn't prioritize our expectations or our little man-made kingdoms that we have. Instead, the vision that Jesus gives in His Beatitudes emphasizes what's weak. Emphasizes what's humble. Emphasizes what's forgotten. Emphasizes what's hopeless, what's poor, what's helpless what's merciful, what's sacrificial, what's peaceful, holy, and persecuted. The question we have to answer, though, as we started this sermon this morning, is this. Do we truly value the virtues and the vision that Jesus gives in the Beatitudes? Because that will shape our vision of what Jesus' kingdom looks like on earth as it is in heaven. Because that's certainly what Jesus is after. He doesn't care just about our empathy, our posture of heart. He cares about the posture of our heart and our action, our attitude and our action. And that's the invitation that He gave to His disciples centuries ago. But I think it's the invitation He gives to us this morning. Will Hickory Grove be a beatitude people? Let us pray. Father, we thank You that You have given us this Word this morning. And as we said, these are visible displays of Your favor. And we see that Your kingdom is completely upside down because we would love to emphasize power. But rather what we see in these Beatitudes is that what is beautiful is weakness. Is a posture of heart that it is ready and willing to submit all of our life to you. And that what we find in these Beatitudes is not pushing people away, but inviting them in. And so, Lord, continue to teach us to remind our hearts and our heads that it's not truly about us, but rather you invite us into sacrificing our own personal preferences, sacrificing our own hopes, and instead taking up your own sacrifice. That we be able to show and demonstrate your kingdom through our bodies. And so, Lord, as we continue to move through 
all of these Sermon on the Mount in the next month, month and a half, Lord, continue to teach us of what it means to follow after you as your disciple. Because it is in these chapters that we find what a disciple looks like, what he or she displays, what he or she, um, how he or she acts in the home and in the community, in the marketplace, wherever you have called us to be. And so give us a vision, but also humble us so that we can live out this vision of the good life that Christ has for us. And so, Lord, may that be the tenor and tone of our lives in the next month and a half. Lord, we offer these things in Christ's name. Amen.